I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. We spoke to Diane Hessen in late October for our inaugural TBA Now podcast. Our conversation centered on Diane's deep interviews with 500 American voters over these past four years. Well, some months have gone by and so much has happened. We wanted to talk to Diane again to get her perspective on the current American political scene. As always, she is optimistic, challenging us to reassess how we might yet find common ground. Give a listen. Diane, it's so nice to see you again. And although this time it is uh, via a screen, um, still nonetheless, how wonderful to reconnect and to uh, talk about as crazy as that we thought the world was when last we spoke. Uh, now it is crazier than ever. Um, welcome back to TVA Now. Thank you. It was an honor to be your your first episode, and uh, I love the podcast. I just this morning finished listening to the Blackers talking about their bakery, which made me hungry. So hopefully, this will go really <laughs> fast. Your inaugural appearance on TBA Now was a wonderful way for us to start. Mm, it gave a window into the work uh, that you've been doing and your really faithful connection to Beth Avoda. We talked before the election, and one of the things that we focused on uh, was the work that you've been doing. It was a series of uh, conversations as part of a study you were doing, really, and sharing with uh, the Boston Globe, uh, among other places, to essentially take the pulse of the American electorate. You have revealed in a variety of articles just how incredibly far apart Americans were on so many central issues. And I wonder, as you think about it now, and the people that you were talking to, did you imagine that things would get as dark as they have become? Well, you know, it depends when you would have asked me. I mean, did I anticipate it? Not really. I mean, I, I started thinking that things were dark when I realized that from listening to these 500 voters over the course of four years, it just struck me that our big problem was not dislike of a political candidate or even the person who was president, that our biggest problem is how we feel about each other, how we feel about other fellow Americans. And when that and, and the forces that drive that get worse and worse and worse, you know, it feels pretty dark. You know, I, I guess put another way, Rabbi, I mean, I think our inability to hear each other, our speculation and our impatience 
is just tearing us apart. And it's a sickness that permeates the American culture, that erodes our collective mental health, that paralyzes our ability to move forward, and it makes us hate each other. You know this in your field. I mean, substance abuse is up, mental illness is on the rise, and sales of guns and ammunition are exploding. I, I don't think that addressing the problem really requires us to agree on everything, but it's dark if we can't figure out how to turn the temperature down. Now, why that's happened, you know, we could talk about cable TV, we could talk about social media, we could talk about very, very divisive leaders and legislators in our country. We could talk about gerrymandering. I mean, we could go to lots of different places, but at the core, I think that we're just talking over each other. We're making assumptions and there are just millions of people in this country that feel angry and misunderstood and unheard. And that feels really dark. Of course, you know, the silver lining is that a lot of our problem is perception. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I think I still believe we talked about this before. I, I still believe that there's enormous common ground that we can build upon. But the, the perception problem is pretty insidious. Get, get into the weeds a bit on the perception problem. How do you define that and how does it work? Well, let me think about an example. If you ask most Democrats about Trump supporters, Democrats say they're a bunch of uneducated, disgusting, hypocritical deplorables who refuse to wear masks and are climate change deniers and racists and um, they sleep with their guns. If we have Republicans who are listening to that, they're like, well, there, I guess there are people like that, but that's not me. That's not most Republicans I know. And, you know, you ask most Republicans about Democrats and, you know, you get the same problem that Democrats are a bunch of elitist socialists who want to total dismantle policing in our country, who want everything to be free, 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 that want open borders and who want to take away guns and allow women to use abortions as birth control and, and so on and so forth. And again, if you're a Democrat and you're listening to that, you say, well, wait a minute, that's not me. I mean, there are some people who believe that, but that's not the case. And that those narratives get built up on a daily basis in our country to the point where, you know, you get something happening like the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And most Republicans, in fact, most Trump supporters think that that was an absolutely horrible thing that happened. And yet, if you ask people about the attacks on the Capitol, we're so likely to say, well, you know, it's all these people who love Donald Trump went running in and, you know, destroyed the Capitol, when in fact, this was a radicalized fringe group of terrible terrorists who actually did all of this. You know, we hear about things, it fits with the narrative that we have, and we jump to conclusions. We, we feel rigid about it because hearing a bunch of crazy people attacking the Capitol fits with a more general belief we have about anybody, for instance, who could possibly ever vote for Donald Trump. And if you're a Republican, if you're a moderate Republican, you think that most Democrats want to give everything away, free college, free health care, free everything. 
And when you hear examples of programs like that, it reinforces the narrative you already have. And so there's lots of data out there to make us continue to be torn apart and to believe the other side is actually just as crazy as we thought they were. Part of the dilemma in all of this, and where I might push back a little bit on the notion that somehow the the folks that uh, were part of the insurrection uh, were all kind of alt-right extremists. Certainly they were there. And we look at the FBI arrests and we see the extent to which a number of people were exactly in that fringe group. However, a lot of them were Trump supporters who went to the rally and were really whipped up yes. by the former president's terrible invective. And then I, I think compounding that, Diane, and, and, and what makes it more problematic is there are certainly Republicans who have spoken clearly and decisively that the election was decided and Joe Biden is the president. However, there are so many people in Congress, elected representatives, who continue to support the fraud label for the election. And I think foundationally that cripples the possibility of beginning to have a conversation about common ground. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me deeply problematic. What, what, mm-hmm. what about those guys? What, yeah. what about those women? Yeah. Okay. So let's start with Capitol Hill. There are a lot of Trump supporters that went, who are regular Americans, not radicalized Trump supporters who went to Capitol Hill to protest that day. We can come back to voter fraud in a sec. I'm a Democrat. So I look at the storming of the Capitol and I see it as a catastrophic capstone to the Trump presidency, you know, where the perpetrators need to pay the consequences and, you know, where former President Trump bears the responsibility. If you talk to Trump supporters, they see it as one more symbol of the anger in the United States, one more riot, one more response, you know, to violent rhetoric from readers. I asked Trump supporters about Capitol Hill and you know, a lot of those people will say, look, there are a lot of women who went to Washington, D.C. in January of 2017 to protest Donald Trump's presidency. Parenthetically, I was one of those women. And there were hundreds of arrests and many injured police officers, and there were vehicles set on fire. And by the way, on Fox News, the signs that those women were holding said, not my president. Aside from the damage to the Capitol, just the notion that a Trump supporter would go to Washington to protest and say about Biden, not my president, is not a unique moment and not the first time that the other party has actually gone in there and protested. Or people will say things like, I think that what happened on Capitol Hill was awful, but it feels to some extent like all of the looting that took place in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, that there were so many people damaging Portland, Oregon, you know, damaging other cities in our country. And of course, I, I say to them, well, wait a minute, though, that wasn't the Black Lives Matter protesters. 
that was just looters. And what they'll say is, well, could you be open to the notion that maybe a lot of what you saw on television related to Capitol Hill, disgusting as it was, were the equivalent of the looters, were the equivalent of Antifa anarchists. But, you know, we tend not to go there. And the videos that circulate, you know, the videos that circulate among my Republican voters are filled with Democratic leaders screaming and yelling, you know, that everybody should revolt. Madonna, I've thought about, you know, blowing up the White House. Or um, what was it? I think it was Eric Holder saying, uh, Michelle Obama says, when they go low, we go high. But, you know, I say, when they go low, we kick them, you know, or whatever else. Just lots of inflammatory language on both sides. And of course, if you're intellectual about it, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not the same. Why are you making this kind of an equivalent statement? What happened on Capitol Hill is not the same as what happened in Portland, Oregon. But from the perspective of Trump supporters, that's very interesting that I think there might not be equivalent, but they see it as equivalent. They see it as it's the same thing as when I say, what about what about Donald Trump lying? And they say, whoa, everybody lies. They all lie. They're all politicians. They all go to Washington and line their pockets and, you know, make a lot of money and, you know, spend time thinking about themselves as opposed to us. And don't you think that links in to the news sources that become the primary place of information? Because what happens is that when I'm not talking subtleties here, that when lies are told and reinforced, forced from a media center that it gives people all they want and need to justify all kinds of behaviors. And, you know, you were talking about the demonstrations and people that went who held signs saying, not my president. I mean, I remember after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I remember those signs of people walking around saying, not my president. The difference is that on January 6th and, and before it, and still, unfortunately, to this day, there are people carrying either physically or mentally a sign saying, pointing to Joe Biden saying, not the president. And I think there's something institutionally about that that is creating an ongoing imbalance. And it's mm-hmm. unclear to me how we can move forward as long as there is no acknowledgement who the president is and people like Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell, who has all kinds of, you know, problematics around him. But these two major elected officials would speak so clearly to support the election and support the fact that Joe Biden is the president. Yeah. It feels unresolvable. Mm-hmm. So I would say among the Republican voters on my panel, about half believe that Biden won legitimately, and the other half believe there was enough election fraud that the winner was probably Donald Trump. You know, that would mean that over 35 million Americans believe the election was stolen. So what's behind that? I mean, in general, when I talk to these voters, they'll say that they have a lot of evidence. It comes from watching the local controversy about returns. 
I remember one voter telling me there was a claim all over her news that Republican poll watchers were being banned from the big arena in Detroit where they were counting ballots. I mean, in fact, there were already zillions of poll watchers inside the arena and it was the maximum that was allowed. But she heard stories about absentee ballots arriving in passenger vans, military ballots being transferred the wrong way. And I did, I decided to lean into this, Rabbi. I I literally said to her, let me send you some stuff. So like I sent her articles that basically said, for instance, that the military ballot thing being transferred by hand onto machine readable ballots was actually standard procedure. It was not a sinister thing. And she said to me, look, thank you for telling me that, but there are just too many fishy situations. And besides, you know, she had a friend who received a ballot for her mother who was deceased, which was proof that the system was a mess. You know, people see things on the media, but they also can validate it. They hear weird things from their friends. I had another voter who said, I have four kids. None of them live in my state. And they all got ballots at my home. I think they could have voted. This voter happened to be in Massachusetts. I think they could have voted in Massachusetts. I will tell you that I think one of the main drivers for those who believe the election was stolen was mail-in ballots. That's where their big concern was. Mail-in ballots being returned without any proof that the submitter was who they claimed to be. And in some states, you just got a ballot in the mail, whether you asked for one or not. People just feel that the potential for fraud is really obvious with those. Now, here's the thing, though. You talk to somebody who's saying that. And if you're a Democrat, you have one thing that you want to say in response. And that is, whoa, 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 whoa. 61 of 62 lawsuits filed by attorneys for Trump were thrown out by judges, including federal judges who were appointed by the president. So there, I mean, think about the dynamic there. If you are one of those people who's screaming, I think it was stolen, and I come to you with all of those lawsuits, it doesn't change your mind. It doesn't change your mind. Those are lawsuits, but that's a judge taking a look at something for 10 minutes. You know, they look at when there's a problem that the Democrats think is wrong, like the Mueller investigation. So when the Democrats see that something they have been wronged, they fund a two-year highly staffed government investigation into it. But no one's doing that related to the election. People feel like it's out of balance. But the only thing that for me turns the temperature down is to say, tell me more. Instead of saying 61 out of 62, instead of saying, here are four more articles all about how there wasn't fraud, people really need to feel heard. I mean, honestly, I don't think there's a way to address the problem of those 35 million without creating some kind of nonpartisan commission to take a look at voting in the United States, where the vulnerabilities are what we need to do moving into the future, how we prevent fraud, even if there wasn't any fraud in the 2020 election, and so on. I mean, most people, even the Democrats in my panel, believe that there is the potential for fraud, that there are potential for irregularities in the process. So why not attack it in some way? But instead, they're screaming steal, and we're screaming 61 out of 62. And then they send an article about somebody in Georgia with an affidavit. And then we send another article. And of course, everything just kind of disintegrates. 
And that's where we are. I mean, we just keep talking at each other. Do you even imagine that a bipartisan anything is possible to establish at this stage? I think the idea of having a bipartisan commission privately funded by a foundation or a public one, uh, frankly, I'm not sure at this stage who would join. How could you pull a bipartisan group together and would anyone listen to them? Well, it might not work, but why wouldn't we try it? What circumstances, what would have to happen for us to have an election in 2022 and 2024? That I mean, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better if we don't at least try to investigate the source of the problem. And I think most Americans, although they think the causes and the way it manifests itself are different, most Americans think our voting is kind of a mess. Millennials don't understand why we can't do it online, you know, with our mobile devices, supported by blockchain, you know, with all kinds of privacy. There are a bunch of states that just send mail-in ballots out randomly without asking people to prove who they are. Even though that didn't go wrong this time, you could have people stealing ballots out of mailboxes. I mean, you could see it happening. So uniform policies, a more nuanced and clear understanding of where the possibility is for fraud, an investigation into where there are best practices in our country, where things work, where mail-in balloting, balloting has actually worked in the past. I mean, there's just, there's so much that we could understand that would improve our voting process. You have to believe that there is some way to make it better. And of course, if you had a bipartisan commission, it wouldn't be a bad idea for them to go out and lean in and listen to the people who believe that there was fraud this time and to see if there's anything about how they feel that is actually legitimate. They might surprise themselves. I mean, look, Rabbi, I'm as guilty as anyone else of cheering 61 out of 62 judges. I get that. But it's illuminating for me to listen to normal people who I trust talking about the evidence that they see. And I even had, a, I mean, going back to the Capitol thing, I mean, one of my Democrat voters last week, we, I was asking all my voters, um, I, I, was going to close the panel down. I decided to just keep going with 150 of them because I couldn't stand not hearing what people were thinking. And one of my Democrat voters last week, a young woman who is probably in her late 30s, said to me, look, you're going to absolutely hate me for this. But I will tell you that if I were in the Capitol and somebody gave me a chance to go into Mitch McConnell's office, put my feet up on his desk, grab a cigar and have pictures made. She said, I would kind of love to do that. I'm embarrassed to say it. Don't hate me. But she said, as I watched those people, I could actually see myself in that situation. And I am about as far from a radical. I'm as much of a Girl Scout as anybody who I know. But I did kind of get how cool it might be to actually have the opportunity to do that. Now, of course, when I first listened to her say that, I was totally appalled, but you get it. Do you get why people would desecrate the Capitol? No. Do you get why people would smash windows? 
Do you get why people would steal things? Do you get why some of the things that happened, which we probably don't know about yet, happened? No. But I thought it was interesting that somebody who was a really, really progressive voter on my panel wouldn't even admit to saying something like that, you know, in her darkest hours. She wrote me, it was one o'clock in the morning. She goes, it's one o'clock in the morning. I know I'm going to regret saying this, but I just thought I'd tell you that I think it would be super cool to do that in Mitch McConnell's office. Sure. And, you know, I, I think uh, one can have a whole variety of fantasies like that. But for her, it was fantasy. <laughs> and she would it. never be in yeah. a, I mean, never. It would be unlikely that such a person as describing mm-hmm. would ever end up right. being a part of a group that would be doing right. what was done. Um Right. And remember, most Republicans feel the same way. I just I think it's really important for us to understand that. I wish I saw someplace where that was where that sentiment was evident, you know, that that uh, again, having heard uh, Mm -hmm. how Mitch McConnell spoke was at least heartening in the sense that we shared a common sense of reality. Mm -hmm. But the notion that somehow the majority of Republicans were appalled. I keep looking, just just show me someplace to look so that I can get that perception because right now I, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I think, okay, so let's flip it again. I'm just going to do this for the sake of trying to make my point, I guess. When you see members of Antifa rioting and burning buildings, Find me an article that has a bunch of Democrats saying, I think that's really awful and disgusting. I mean, you don't see that. It's just so obvious that it's disgusting and that those people are not representative of the Democratic Party. So I don't know where we'd find it. I guess that I didn't see this, but at one point, I guess Katie Couric was on television or on her podcast or something, you know, like lumping Trump supporters together with those animals at the Capitol and saying that Trump supporters needed to be reprogrammed. And, you know, my voters thought that was so frustrating and condescending to lump them in with those crazy, horrible people who attacked the Capitol. You know, and and one, one voter said to me, look, there were 40 Trump rallies in the month of December all around the country, not a blade of glass disturbed, and nobody talks about that. I know this is very Pollyannish, but I think we need to listen to each other, you know, and ask the questions. Otherwise, I mean, and is what I'm saying the way to go? Maybe not. Maybe I'm being naive. But otherwise, I feel like things deteriorate further. I've been so worked up about all of this. So I decided to write a book. Like everybody kept saying to me, Diane, you should write a book. And I'd go, I don't want to write a book. I wrote a book 25 years ago. It was the most painful thing in the world. I was locked up in my office, unable to see my friends, blah, blah, blah. But I just decided I'm, I'm so passionate about all of this. I think there's so much work that we need to do, not to get to the point where we agree on everything and put our arms around each other and sing Kumbaya, but we have to turn down the heat. We have to stop presuming and to try to understand and to try to teach, treat each other with dignity and to try to comprehend the fact that most Americans are not crazy radicals. I don't really know what the alternative is, but that's why I'm writing the book. 
there's got to be a way that we can work collectively to just turn down the heat. Otherwise, it's just too depressing. Yeah, I, I <laughs> depressing is the word. So tell me out here, Dan. So in, in, in your mind, as you look at this, and then I, I do want to get back to this book and uh, what's going to be happening with that now that you've officially uh, made it public. Uh, is that a scoop? I wonder, by the way. Or- <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, I haven't made some big announcement yet. I've just been heads down. Well, I want to hear more but, about that. Yeah. But first, as you look, do you do you really think that in the crazy dialectic of the American political scene right now that Antifa and the insurrectionist that attacked the Capitol on January sixth? Do you think that they and these two extremes represent the same essential impulse? Are they, the, are they, are they basically one and the same thing on opposite ends? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'd have to really ask a sociologist about that, but yeah, I, I do. And look, the extremes that we're talking about are less than 1% of the country. People say to me, oh, the extremes must be the 10% most liberal Americans and the 10% most radically conservative Americans. No, I mean, it's not 10%. This is less than 1% of each party is radicalized and extreme. But of course, there are a lot of people in our country. Yeah, but here's the thing. Antifa, nobody is carrying a Joe Biden flag or a Democratic Party flag, particularly in Portland, which is its own sort of unique dysfunctional city that was where predominantly riots and mayhem were white guys uh, dressed in black with masks on. But there is no the Antifa. There are people that have a anarchistic philosophy, but they don't hold the banner of the Democratic Party, nor is there any political connection to them. No one in Congress who's a Democrat says, I represent the interests of Antifa because, Mm -hmm. and and yet, I don't know about you, but when I was looking at the January 6th riot, I saw a whole lot of flags. Most of them said Trump. Some of them were American and a few of them were Stars and Bars Confederate flags. They were attacking and rioting in support of an ideology around a man who they elected in 2016 and were pushing to be the president and believed he is the president in 2020. I just don't see it settling quite so neatly between the, the, the two ends. Yeah. I don't know all the details about Antifa. You know, I know they are a left wing anti-fascist group that in their mission wants to be nonviolent, but it's not the scoop. It's not what you see about Antifa in our news. And if you ask most Republicans about Antifa because they watch conservative news, there is an equivalency to the people who were in the Capitol. And there is no one in Congress who would say, I represent you know, the Antifa block, just like there's really not anybody in Congress who would say, I'm the representative of the people who stormed and attacked the Capitol. I don't know. I think Josh Hawley might be, might be think really he was, You think he's with those people? Yeah. Saying he understands them. Mm-hmm. He could be representing them, but that would be the equivalent of, you know, look, 
a lot of the Antifa mission is about being anti-racist and about being anti-far right. So you could see more, the most radical people in Congress on the Democratic side saying Antifa is actually a really solid, good, well-intentioned organization that's gotten some bad press because of the following things that have happened. I mean, I, I think you could find that. I'm a little bit out of my league here, you know, in speculating about that, because all I know is what my voters said. I, I don't know what Antifa would say. I don't know whether there is an equivalency here. I just know that there is an equivalency in the minds of regular American citizens who do their best to try to understand what is happening in their world with their party. And that's what they see. If they're wrong, you could tell them that they needed to do more research or learn more. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think people are doing their best to try to understand the circumstances under which they're living. And we start with narratives that say the other guys are bad or the other guys don't get me. You just kind of keep building and building on your narrative, confirmation bias and all of that. Yeah. It is a a dark and confusing time in our history as we try to make sense of it all. And there are just so many things happening simultaneously where you have an alarming sense of what the future is and what happens when the next round of elections come up. As you're suggesting, it, it doesn't feel like it's going to be anything good to see. Yeah. But then, you know, you look at certain organizations that are really, that are organizing with extraordinary success around anything from uh, voter rights, which are under siege to, I know you can pick out your, your social cause mm-hmm. and uh, understand how there is, I think, in all of this, an increased consciousness of the things that many people believe Yes. Have to happen to to support America as a democracy we want it to be. Yeah. Look, I feel lucky because I've been talking to people for four years. I'm optimistic. You know, why am I optimistic? Number one, there is enormous common ground on the issues. There is common ground on gun control, on immigration, on climate change, on foreign policy, on the economy, on, you know, there are ways to come together on the major issues. And the other thing I know, is that when people actually sit down and listen to each other, everything changes. You know, I had a really, really interesting uh, experience this week. About two months ago, the Globe was doing a piece on unity and when we could ever be united. And what we decided to do, because I'm on the editorial board, is to get the voices of various voters talking about whether they thought we could be united as a country. So the person who was putting this all together for the Globe called me and said, do you think we could get one of your Trump supporters to write an article? I reached out to a couple of them and one of them agreed to do it. A guy named Joseph who lives in Texas. And Joseph wrote an article, an op-ed column in the Boston Globe about unity and about why he thought we couldn't get together. And he laid out some of his thoughts about what he thought was going on in the country and with the party. And I thought it was a really well-written piece. So the following week, the guy who reads the letters to the editor gets a letter from a woman in 
Brookline, whose name is Aviva Brooks. And Aviva wrote to the Globe and said, I so disagree with this guy. And I'm just wondering, do you think I could talk to him? Do you think he would be willing to talk to me? Hmm. The Globe calls me. What do you think? I called Joseph. He says, let me think about it. I said, look, there's no obligation, but I think it would be interesting if you decide to do it. Let me know. To make a long story short, last week, four months after this all started, I did a Zoom call with Aviva and her husband, Doug, and Joseph to talk about what was going on. And here, they've been talking for four months. They Zoom once a month and they are in love with each other. The stories that they told me about how they spoke to each other, about how they tried to listen and understand, about how afraid they were in the beginning. You know, Aviva said to me, I I literally, this was even before the Capitol siege, and I literally thought that I was going to be getting onto Zoom with a crazy person, like that guy with the horns in the Capitol. It was very moving for me to see with no guidance, no psychology degree, no facilitator, to have a chance to listen to those two people and what they had actually learned from each other. And it was so moving to me. Mm. I've like written about the whole thing in the book. I just decided this is a great example, but we can do that. We can, if, if everybody had a chance to watch a video of, you know, we can have those conversations or we can watch videos of those conversations. But um, the, the strange thing is when I think about Aviva and Joseph and Doug talking to each other, there are many things I expected when I was, would follow up with them and nothing really surprised me. And you're not surprised probably in hearing that story. We've seen it on TV. You know, here's a room full of people who voted for Trump. Here's a room full of people who voted for, Hil- for Hillary Clinton. Let's all have them sit in a room for the day and break bread and talk. And by the end, they're hugging each other. Just like we see that in even more difficult situations like Israelis and Palestinians sitting and talking to each other and how moving it is to listen to people asking each other questions and trying to understand and being as open and authentic as possible. It's extraordinary. It's not that difficult to say, tell me more. I want to understand that. That's really interesting. Where did you learn that? Uh huh. What else? And, you know, when we do that, of course, the other person's way more willing to listen to our point of view. I, I don't know what else we do, but to think that having a president who's relatively moderate, who's extraordinary, well, extraordinarily well intended, can just kind of come in and fix the problem, I think is way more naive than my thinking that the way we fix the problem <laughs> is by shutting up and stopping sending each other articles and sending each other statistics and just trying really hard to understand. I, I think it's way easier to stop the insanity doing that than it is to hope that Joe Biden pulls it off. Well, I, I, I think you make really compelling points. And it's pretty clear that the only way to move forward is uh, with some sense of mutual respect, mutual humanity. And I do think you're right. I think that 
that's been lost in all of this. And Aviva was brave enough to make the request and Joseph was brave enough to say, uh, okay, what the hell, let's give this a shot, is indicative of the possibilities that are out there. And I think the difficult issue here is imagining how does that get set up? What will draw people out of their respective camps to do that? And I think if I wanted to have a conversation with someone about this, and, and I really would be willing, I, I think if someone wanted to, and I, I guess I actually have had conversations with moderate Republicans, you know, and I think we see places where we agree and disagree on policies and on issues. And I just keep bumping up against the notion that for some folks, there is an, uh, there's a reality problem. That is to say, we can get up to a certain point, then looking at the same thing, which is okay in an art museum. You can say, I love that picture. You can see that, that a, a two-year-old could have done that. Mm-hmm. But it's one thing in art, but it's another thing to say the election was legal and fair and the results are clear and codified. And someone to say, no, it, it's exactly the opposite. I, I don't know how those conversations happen, but I guess as you're suggesting that there has to be some place to start because we do share one country and in the end, our, our destinies are tied together. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, the ultimate goal is more civility, less hate, less rage. You know, the United States of America doesn't exactly have a history of everybody getting along. And that's not just right. civil war. It's related to our founding. It goes even further back to 1619 and you know, bringing slaves in uh, from Africa to ensure that we would have an economy that worked. I mean, just there's so much strife, so much conflict in our history. So I, I don't think that the goal here is to bring us to this perfect state of being. The rage is so destructive that if you could go from being enraged about those stop the steal people to having a conversation with somebody where maybe they even tell you something that gives you pause or makes you laugh or makes you scratch your head and say, I know exactly what you mean and where they kind of do the same thing with you. I think it makes an extraordinary difference in someone's life to be able to have those kinds of conversations. I know it has for me. Yeah. Yeah. Diane, uh, we could keep going I think, for uh, several more hours, uh, but I think we're at the wrap up stage. Um, just give us a quick, a quick uh, thumbnail on this book that you're writing. Yeah. I've been writing this thing for a couple of months. You know, it's, it's funny. My, one of my big fears about writing the book is that by the time I got finished with the book, and by the time this traditional publisher went through their 18 month process, by the time the book came out, it wouldn't be relevant anymore. I mean, we'd either be back to Kumbaya without me or, you know, the world would have blown up or something happens where the dynamics change. I found a great publisher. I don't know if you've ever heard of Real Clear Politics. They're on, it's a media company that's on TV a lot. You know, they got a lot of commentators yeah. out there. They've got a really interesting website. They have a publishing arm. So Real Clear Publishing is going to publish the book. And I have an unbelievable editor and he has me so organized that literally every 
single day. I have a list of tasks, what I need to write, what I need to edit, what I need to do, who I need to interview or whatever. And the goal is to have the the first draft finished by the middle of March and the book out by June. So it's going to be called, I know, it's breathless. Like it's crazy. I wake up at four. I set my alarm. I wake up at four o'clock every morning because I'm old Mm. and that's when my brain works the best. (laughs) And I grab my coffee and I sit in my office and I just write for a few hours. I'm going to take about 25 of my op-eds and include them in there with like a couple of paragraphs before each of the op-eds saying, here's what was happening and what I was writing at the time. I have an intro chapter that I finished that's about probably the equivalent of 20 pages long that just lays out a lot of what we've talked about. And um, I do have, you know, I'm in the middle of writing this piece now at the end, which is why I'm so hyped up about listening about what we need to do and the incredible power of trying to figure out how to walk in each other's shoes. So um, the title of it is Our Common Ground, colon, you know, subtitle, Insights from Four Years of Listening to American Voters. I'm just, I'm hoping it'll make a difference. You know, I really am. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited about doing this. I just felt like I had some unfinished business. So we'll see what happens. I am thrilled about this. And I have to say that talking to you today helped to reestablish a little bit of hope that has been severely shaken. And I know for you too, but I, I think your steadfast notion that listening and respecting and trying to derive common ground is what we have to do. And, you know, our task together as a nation is to figure out exactly the means to do that. And I hope that you might uh, give us some guidance on that in the future. So, Diane, thank you so very much for taking the time to be with us on TBA Now. My pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.